Alan Clark. This is the photo one taken. I'm very excited about today's guest. His name is Chris Buck. He started out as kind of a mentor to me. I met Chris years ago in New York at these big events that American Illustration, American Design would have. But, you know, originally when I met or knew anything about Chris, I knew about his work. I knew some of the photos that he'd taken. I knew that he'd worked with Jeff Buckley. He's always been this guy that kind of goes the other way. And I identify with that because growing up, I did the same thing. If you like this, I was not going to like it. Automatically, that's how I was. And I think he's actually called himself before a contrarian, which I believe is completely true. When he does shoots, he's not the guy that wants to be friends with the celebrity or the client necessarily. He likes that separation. But he definitely likes the roles that happen on photo shoots. And he doesn't want to get something out of them that's pleasant or nice. Chris goes for the odd. Chris goes for weird ideas and sometimes ideas over, you know, niceness or friendliness or something like that. He's really about the idea to the sacrifice sometimes of being able to be this person's friend. He's very clear in his vision. He talks a lot about having to protect that vision. But Chris was always one of these people that was, he wasn't really necessarily even about the technique and the technical aspects of it. I know for a fact that he's not like the most technical photographer, but he is definitely one of the greatest when it comes to ideas and getting your idea across. And hopefully it jives with your client. Sometimes it doesn't. I know for a fact he has shots that were asked to be not used because of that. Sometimes he would use them anyway. That's the person that Chris is. He's not there to make you happy necessarily. That's what I like about him. Chris, talk a little bit about how you started. And that, to me, is just as important as where you are right now. How you started. And you, like me, started with music in Canada, in the music scene. Well, exactly. And the fact is, I would have rather had worked in music. That was really my passion in my 20s. Mm. But the thing is, I have no musical talent, and that became an obstacle. <laughs> because I couldn't even be a producer. You know, like I Essentially, I would have had a record label. Or bid management. Mm -hmm. I recognized that I want to be on the creative side. So I then decided I'd photograph musicians. I did one of those Venn diagrams. I mean, I I I didn't literally do one, but I think my calculation was I kind of had these two concentric circles. And one of them was what I was interested in, which was pop culture, Mm. music, movies, politics, just the whole whole messy thing. Mm -hmm. And then What I was good at was the visual arts and photography. I just seemed to have a knack for. I really wasn't very interested in it, honestly. I was interested in music and movies and such, but I had a talent for photography. So I knew I could use that to get connected to the pop culture world. But I realized later that I had a third circle, which was I recognized there was a marketplace. And even though I, in the spectrum of what one does in, you know, pop culture portraits, I was kind of at one end of it, a little odder, more personal, you know, less glamorous perhaps in terms of my take. But that market was so big that I believed I could carve out some tiny sliver of it and make a living out of it. So how did you make the choice? You said a little odder, but how old were you at the time? And then what made you decide to be odd? Did that come from music? Did that come from the scene that you were in? Did that little choice that you made instead of going, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go for pretty, you know, I'm going to go for great lighting. I'm going to go for making people look perfect. You didn't do that. You said, no, I would like to have a different take on this, which you did. Sure. But at that age, like how does a person do that? I know so many people that never make that decision that early because they're trying to please everyone. 
Yeah, I think it was a personality thing that at some point I recognized this is an elementary school. Like my peers didn't accept me. I was I was an outcast, but I was like I was not really let into the cool crowd of the boys. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, Well, I'm gonna go my own way and I'm gonna be I'm gonna find my own path. And I rebelled by not even trying to be part of their group. But I think that little psychological flip gave me an advantage that I could go down the path less taken and be not only like comfortable, but much happier there. That became my groove, you know? Yeah. Obviously, I want to succeed and I need to make a living. I do want to be successful, but I do think that high risk leads to greater success. Absolutely. Do you remember the point at which there was a photo shoot that made you, that, you know what I mean, that got you talking to a different circle or got you talking to the circle that you wanted to be in? Was there a photo shoot in particular that was that, or was it just a collective group of maybe going into American illustration, American design, you know, or something? Can you remember something changing drastically after this one shoot? I would say that for the first 20 years of my career, it really was just a slow, gradual climb. And I could certainly, you know, in retrospect, point to benchmarks of my first full page editorial in the US or, you know, things like that. Mm You hear the stories of David LaChapelle or Irving Penn, these amazing narratives of these crazy skyrocket careers. And I never had anything like that. It wasn't like Annie Lubitz, you know, gets on board at Rolling Stone and three years later, she's shooting all the covers. Right. I didn't have a career like that. I will say that I did a shoot of Michelle Bachman for Newsweek. It became a very famous sort of notorious cover in 2011. And that changed things for me in a way I never would have guessed. Like at first, there was a cooling effect of like, whoa, this is very controversial. But then I believe people perceive me as being good at covers because I did a famous cover. And so I started getting a lot more cover shoots, which meant I was shooting A-list people in their prime, which I'd rarely done that before. Most of my shoots were people on their way up Mm -hmm. or on their way down. And so even though I shot a lot of great people, I was shooting like William Burroughs in his 70s or Keanu Reeves in his 20s. After this cover, I shot Barack Obama while he's in the White House. I mm. shot Kendrick Lamar. I shot Yo-Yo Ma. And I'd be shooting like every month. There'd be another A-list person in the zeitgeist. Did you change anything once this Bachman thing happened? You know what I mean? At that point, you were like, oh, okay. All right. I'm at that party now. Did you change anything about what you were doing? No, not at all. I mean, if anything, I remember even like five years before chatting with a friend and saying, look, I'd rather do what I do with kind of niche personalities who are lesser known and doing my Chris Buck thing than to change what I do so that I can get the A-list people. And I did think like, hey, one of my goals still is to do the Chris Buck thing with the A-list people. If I can get to the A-list, I'm not going to suddenly soften my approach. Like, look, I always do what the clients ask me to, and I'm always respectful and professional, but if anything, I want to get with the A-list people and make badass Chris Buck pictures. Like, that's <laughs> the point. Yeah. Another thing that this podcast is going to be about is, was there one that got away? Was there a photo shoot that you were going to do that didn't happen? And did it just, you know, shatter you? Or, you know, was there something that yeah. you had? Yeah, I mean, so many. With me, there was, uh, I was supposed to shoot Sister Rosa Parks. She actually was in the other room next to the room I was standing in. 
she had had a break in in her house that week and her handlers were just not anything. Even if they committed to something, they were saying no. And so I'm standing in the room all set up, ready to go. She's in the room next to me and they just completely said no. And that just literally just devastated me because she passed away. I think maybe six months after that. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking this question is how did you respond to that letdown? Did you come back stronger or is it just another one of the things you did and you just kept going? I didn't really, there's a few people who have written letters to asking to take their picture mm-hmm. over the years, but very, very few. So I'd love to have an amusing collection of rejection letters or whatever, but oh, that'd be amazing. I don't really have that because I usually relied on assignments. You know, like occasionally I'd hear someone coming through town or I just have someone on my radar. I do tend to be drawn to kind of niche celebrities, like people who are giant in their world. Right. I remember pitching Ennio Morricone. Yeah. The guy did the soundtracks. The mission. Pele, the soccer, great. Wow. I wrote a letter to Frank Sinatra. (laughs) did? Yeah. Did you get one back? I got one back like six months later from his PR people. I wrote a letter to Barry Goldwater. I had a friend in Phoenix who had worked with him and he knew how to get to him. So I got a personal letter from Barry Goldwater, which is obviously super badass uh it's really cool did you tell him about the ideas that you had for the shoot no it was just a general like request i guess yeah i would never tell ideas right i do find that when i shoot people for me like that i find it actually difficult because there's an implication whether they take it that way or not i perceive an implication of i'm going to make you look good and that's not really my thing as you said it's not what i'm about one time i photographed miss manners Judith Martin, who was like a columnist in the 80s and 90s, an etiquette columnist. Mm. And I was a fan of her column, and she had been photographed in my local newspaper in Toronto. And I wrote her a letter saying that I thought the picture was unflattering and disrespectful. And so she wrote me back saying, sure, you can come photograph me. So I drove to DC and and made her portrait. But in that case, I was a fan, so I kind of was happy to make her look good. I mean, the thing about it is early on, that was very important to like get to people, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I built my portfolio initially, because no one's going to hire you if you have no pictures. So the way I initially got my first photo shoots was I became friendly with a music promoter in Toronto. Mm. And then he introduced me to artists who were coming through town who I wanted to photograph. So I photographed pictures in my early portfolio were like John Cale from the Village Underground or Marky Smith from The Fall. I photographed those guys by going through this booker, you know? Yeah. And actually, I ran to him in the airport in Toronto like 20 years later. And I said, uh, I said, hey, great to see you. Like, I really want to tell you how much I really appreciate it. Really, like, this is what launched my career was this access and having to, you know, be able to shoot these. You know, they're underground people, but they were like international personalities. And I was able to build my, my initial portfolio. So I got to ask you, why do you give me that access? He kind of shrugged and said, you seem serious. <laughs> I was like, that's it? But I thought about it later, and I kind of realized that I'm kind of similar. Like when young people come to me, and even the way they phrase their email or, or the work they have suggests a level of seriousness. Because in a way, too, like you got to think, for people like you and I at this point, most people who come to you or you cross paths with Frankly, they're not very serious. No. They're kind of just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And the ones who are more serious, because the fact is you're busy and you have limited resources for helping people. 
And you realize I need to filter who I spend time giving help to or, or connecting. Right. And so you realize like, well, if they actually do really seem serious, actually it does have meaning. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why you're on this podcast, because I... I'm very serious about this. I love this. This is the lane that I'm in. I love the lane. I don't want to do another lane. And I also cannot stand people that do 10 things. If you look at somebody's Instagram handle, they're, you know, this, that, and dog mom. And it's not that I'd mind them being a dog mom. They can be a dog mom, but it just like, can you pick a lane here? Like you don't, you're not really excellent at anything. And yeah, I know. that's the problem that it's a lost art of doing one thing well. And that's the main heart of this whole thing. The reason why I'm even talking on a podcast is because I want to help remind people what it's like to do one thing well, you know, to put the time in, to be serious, like you're saying. That's exactly it. Well, you know, when you asked me what I want to talk about, I mentioned talking about the investment of time. Yeah. Looking back, I recognize my superpower was that I knew what I wanted. That's it. End of sentence. Because what happens is over time, you get distracted by commercial pressures or paying bills, right. you know, life, like moving or whatever things are going on, dealing with a loved one or whatever, responsibilities. But if you have a target, you continually readjust your aim to that target over time. And I knew I wanted to do odd personal photographs of pop culture figures. That's all I wanted to do yeah. for the first 15 years. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so even though I did other things... I always trained back to that target when I had that free moment or whatever. So over time, I hit that target. But it took me, you know, 10, 12 years to like land it square on bullseye. Hmm. But what kept you going during this time? Like what made you still trying that? Did you get any feedback that it was working at the time? Well, sure. Look, I was hitting the target. I just wasn't hitting the bullseye. I see. But also knowing my target gave me clarity and gave me faith. Mm. One of the things, when you see people of faith, they have that superpower. They believe in that higher power that is driving them in the right direction. Yeah. So they're doing a similar thing, right? You know, when you see Mormons, they learn a foreign language and they go to that country and they like work to convert people. Mm. That is crazy focus. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see them learning Portuguese and going to Brazil or Chinese and going to China because they have that belief and they have that target. And I think it's a similar thing in the arts. If you have your target, that's why I talked about those circles, right? Yeah. If you have the talent and the marketplace exists, and then you have that focus on the thing you want. Wow. But the thing about it is when I meet young people and they don't know what they want, I don't know how you find it. When you have that target, you make sacrifices to keep focused on that target, right? Yeah. You have to jettison certain things to get there. And not everyone has that. No. Early on when I had interns, I had them work the same hours as me, which is like ridiculous, insane hours. And I had an intern one time. At some point, she was like, can I leave at some point? <laughs> I, you know, I want to go meet my boyfriend for dinner. And I remember at that, that moment, I thought, you'll never be a photographer. Wow. To be fair, now I have reasonable boundaries around like work hours and such. Yeah. But I did recognize she doesn't get it. It wasn't that she was saying, hey, I also have this thing I need to do, but I can work later tomorrow, perhaps. She just was like, this isn't reasonable. Yeah. Do you happen to know if this was true or not for her? 
Yeah, she didn't stay a photographer. Well, then you were right. And she was talented. Talent has little to do with people's success. Oh, man. It's an ingredient, but it's not the only one. You know, we live in a town here in Nashville where people come here all the time, record records. They spend 40 grand on the recording process, but zero on marketing, zero on giving the love back to that thing they just spent all this money on. It just sits in their garage and rots, sure. you know, whether it's a download card or a box of CDs. And yep. to me, that's exactly about this. I see this with photographers too. They spend like years shooting a project, a year and a half making the book. They have an exhibition and then the thing comes and goes and I never hear anything about it anywhere. It's like, you got to hire a publicist and spend the same money on a publicist and on hustling and selling that thing. Anything that comes to mind when it comes to a photo shoot that you just didn't plan, a story of something that happened on a photo shoot that's just absolutely crazy, or you definitely didn't see it going this way? A relatively recent one was I had a last-minute assignment to photograph ASAP Rocky, Mm. and I was scheduled to take care of my daughter that day. You know, She finished with her daycare at a certain time, and then I was responsible for taking care of her. So she was, I think, five? Yeah, she was five. I did have a babysitter lined up, but the babysitter wasn't going to be available until like after the shoot was about to start or whatever, right? So I got my daughter, brought her to the shoot with the assistant, and I just said, okay, just sit here and, you know, just be good and maybe you can do a drawing or whatever. Then the babysitter comes and she's, you know, she's like a young woman. She's like, ASAP Rocky, oh my God, can we stay? (laughs) And I'm like, sure, you watch, sure, stay. So they stay and she's with, my daughter in the back of the room. And so my daughter does a drawing of the shoot. <laughs> so That's awesome. She draws the lights. She draws ASAP and, you know, me holding the camera and all that. So at some point, you know, we're like a couple setups in ASAP's got a shirt off. He's like being crazy. And the babysitter knocks. So then now they're outside to finish the drawing. They come back in and she's like, Olive wants to show you guys the drawing. She comes in very sheepishly, and she's an outgoing kid. So, obviously, she gets that this person's important, Mm -hmm. and so she shows the drawing to ASAP, and he loves it. So, she's drawing big chain in his red shoes, and he's like, can I have it? Wow. (laughs) That's so great. And she nods, you know, slowly, yes. And so, he says... I'm going to use it for my next album art. Wow. Did he? We have not heard from him since. I'm not sure if all <laughs> will give the permission, but. <laughs> but she's got a lot of money at stake here. Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, she'll have to talk to her lawyer. Yes, she will. Her people will have to get with ASAP's people. It's like, yeah. that's, that's a necessary. He might be in jail in Sweden still, so that might well, be I a know. problem. But when he gets out. I know. I'll have to break it to her that he's like had some assault charges. Actually, you know, if you watch the video, he didn't do anything. He was actually trying to keep the fight from happening. These guys kept oh, really? agging it on. So I hate to oh, say I it, see. but it's one of the rare instances where a rap just didn't instigate the incident. You know, yeah, he didn't strike me as the fighter type. No, he's not. He seems more like a lover than a fighter to me. But yeah, you never know. I've been called that too. Marcus asked me a question today. Marcus is our producer here on the podcast, and he asked me how long we've known each other. And I was trying to figure it out. And I think it's something like 20 years. I mean, it it doesn't seem like I think you and I first met at one of the uh, American Photography, American Illustration parties they would have 
what was the name of that? Remember that synagogue in Greenwich Village that we used to go to for those parties all the time? Yes, Angel Orange Hands. Such a cool place. I tried to rent it once for a photo shoot. It was for a half day, and it was something like five yeah. or ten k for a half day. Seems ludicrous. Yeah. So even though the budget was almost yeah. there, I just was like, "Can you give me four hours or three hours?" And no. Yeah. But we used to have these parties there all the time, and I think I met you at one of the American Photo American Illustration parties and you came up and I think you were just kind of standing in a circle and you asked me and I can't remember if it was handball or stickball you asked me if I wanted to play handball or stickball and I was like it was street hockey street hockey that's it street yeah. hockey yeah. you being Canadian I can see how that would happen and yeah. that was such an odd it was like oh wow this guy is there instead of me <laughs> rubbing elbows with Chris Buck and, you know, let's go have some drinks. And it was just, Hey, let's go play street hockey. And I was like, okay, cool. I actually might be this guy's friend. That was the first thought in my head. And, uh, that was amazing. And I don't even remember how long ago it was, but yeah. What are you going to realize is that's how I vet people. If they come, I get to see what they're really made of, you know? That's right. I don't think I could do it, but I think later, a couple of years later, I ended up doing a studio thing with AIGA and I ended up in your apartment, the first one that you had in Chinatown where you shot Chloe Savini. Sure. I love the wallpaper. Remember that blue wallpaper on the wall? That was That's amazing. Right. Yep. Yep. And it was just so cool. And I just remember thinking, this is a cool spot that I could see myself shooting in here. And you did a lot of shoots there. Did you do Farley there? No, no. I did a handful of shoots there. Chloe Savigny, I actually did at Sundance in Utah. Okay. Chris Farley was at a studio, ironically, in the photo district. Hmm. I mean, I did a couple shoots there. I just remember the wallpaper being in one shot particular, and I just can't yeah. remember. It's in the Casey Affleck shoot. Okay. Okay. But that was, I think, when I actually got to spend more time around you at that point. But to me, knowing you for this long is absolutely a treasure but the main thing is is that always in the back of my mind i've always been similar to you and that i don't want a typical photo shoot to happen i always want at least my idea to come across you know take away one for just me and that's something that i think i learned from you a long time ago is that it's okay it wasn't that i wasn't thinking that it was that it was there was permission there sure and i really love that about everything you've always done you've kind of been uncompromising with that did that have anything to do with your book title for the book that you put out with Joaquin on the cover, Uneasy, did that have anything to do with that? Does that kind of sum up who you are as Uneasy? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of sums up my style and photography and certainly, you know, some part of me. I think I'm more comfortable now than I was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I wouldn't say I'm easy, but I'm less uneasy. <laughs> the pictures in the later years... In the last sort of seven, eight years, their people are less uneasy in a way, you know? Yeah. My designer actually came to me with a couple of the pictures and was like, these aren't very uneasy. You need to go back to your edit. Hmm. That's interesting. It's almost like they knew you and they knew that you weren't choosing the best you. Well, I think there's more that my style at that point was a little more high production and I was choosing what I thought were the best pictures, but with the high production and the pictures being kind of more there's it was still odd but was more kind of like relaxed and happy i think he was just like yeah it doesn't fit the narrative yeah maybe half the pictures in the book really fit the narrative precisely but mm. i think that he just felt a few of the pictures just it was throwing off the balance in some way for him you know originally we were first started talking about doing the podcast you said that you had a book coming out it's a year off what's this book going to be about i'll tell you in a year <laughs> okay all right and that is typical chris buck everybody this is exactly well, yeah <laughs> this is what he does this is how chris <laughs> is so we'll wait 
patiently for that title and subject matter. And I kind of think I know what it is, but I'm not going to say anything. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Who are some of your favorite people through time that have inspired you and your work? Well, photographers, certainly when I was starting out, probably my biggest influences were Arnold Newman, Irving Penn, and Anton Corbin. Mm. Those three really were the kind of stylistic influences. Yeah. Photography-wise, more recently, I'm a big fan of Katie Greenan. Mm. I think her portraits are amazing. Just the vulnerability, but also her visual style can be fantastic too. I like Philip Lorca de Corsia. Mm. Career-wise, I love Cindy Sherman. I love how the longevity and how her work changes but remains within a th- consistent theme too. I think she's really fantastic. So that was amazing that you got to do a photo shoot with her then, right? You know, I've shot her three times. I'm still not happy with any of them. So really, hopefully there'll be another one coming up. Now is that you're not happy with anything up to your standards or do you want her to like it? I don't care if she likes it. Yeah, there you go. Good answer. And how meaningful was it that you were the first recipient of the Arnold Newman Award? Then that to me would be a milestone in my career, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It wasn't something I submitted for there was no entry that just was bestowed onto me and that was yeah amazing and i actually met arnold Newman and interviewed him when i was still living in toronto you don't have that anywhere uh if you look at my blog it's on there really unfortunately i don't have the original transcript and i can't find the audio because it's a phone interview but um i have the original article so i've been able to put that on it's on my blog was there anything from that Arnold Newman interview that just struck you as amazing? I'll tell you something funny that I learned from that that's not from the interview. Okay. So he came into a talk at my alma mater in Toronto, and then I you know, approached him probably after, and I made a quick portrait with him, which isn't very good, but I made a quick portrait with him, and I got his phone number of a studio, and that's how I, so I did the interview like on the phone like a week later or whatever. So he said, I'll give you a half an hour for the interview. So I did it like in the late afternoon or early evening with him. And I planned on going to see a movie with a friend after, like just a half an hour window for the interview. And then I'd have to run off to the theater to meet my friend for the movie. So we got on the phone, we got talking and the interview was going great. You know, we're hitting 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, and I realized he scheduled a half an hour because he wanted to have an out. If he wasn't into it, he wanted to to jump off the phone, right? Yeah. But he was doing fine and he could see that I knew his work and I was, you know, whatever, relatively articulate and keen. And he would have happily probably talked for an hour. But because I'd scheduled something for after, (laughs) (laughs) I had to get off the phone with Arnold Newman to go see some dumb movie. You had no out. You needed an out from the movie. Uh, And so I had to get off the phone and end the interview. Wow. That sucks. But it was a great lesson. I never schedule anything after a shoot or any kind of like professional appointment. I never schedule anything for after, because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, if I do a photo shoot, you know, I went to go photograph Annie Leibovitz. It was supposed to be 15 minutes. I ended up being there for hours. Really? 
That's a whole other story <laughs> for our next interview. This will be for part two with Chris Buck. Yeah, exactly. Well, I thank you for being with us today. This has been amazing. Thanks for spending some time with us. Happy to be here. Let's do another one again soon. Would love it. Hi, Marcus DePaula here, producer of the Photo Untaken podcast. Alan and I really appreciate you listening. And we also wanted to thank Chris Buck for taking the time to be our first guest on the show. You can see all of Chris's amazing work on his website at chrisbuck.com. We've included some images and links to what they discussed in this episode in the show notes on our website at thephotountaken.com. We're currently in the process of partnering with some sponsors that we know you all would like to hear from. But in the meantime, I just want to quickly mention, if you're a photographer who's looking for a way to improve your photos and find new clients to improve your photography business, Alan offers some really valuable consulting and one-on-one coaching packages on his website, alanclarkphotography.com. Music for this episode is by our good friend, Aaron Tosti. On behalf of Alan Clark and myself, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Photo Untaken, Stories from Outside the Frame.